Today's passage is Acts 18, 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm, attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Molly. Oh, well, good morning. Wow, that's good. Not going to do the cheesy pastor thing where you say it twice. Uh, we're super excited to be here. My name is Charles. My wife Amanda is over here. Uh, we've been with Redemption Peoria really since its infancy. And uh, even though we've both grown up in church, we absolutely uh, love this church. It's not necessarily that it's special or anything like that. We just feel that it's uh, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting. Uh, in a way that we haven't experienced before, and um, it's just so, so good. We were out of town for, well, out of country for a few weeks, and though we saw many churches, uh, we longed to be back here right now. So we're really glad to be among you guys, with our church family, uh, even those of you who I don't know. It's just a really, really good blessing to be able to gather together and sing and uh, dive into the Word. So uh, let's pray, if we can. Father God, we come to you today. Uh, asking to know you more. I pray that you would speak to me, Lord, and that you'd speak through me, that I would just be your mouthpiece, that people would be completely blown away by your goodness and your grace um, and not anything I can bring to the table. I pray, Lord, that we would see you more clearly because of uh, this passage of Scripture. I pray that uh, those in this room that do know you would be emboldened and strengthened to live their lives for you uh, as their highest joy, myself included. I pray for those in the room who don't know you, Lord, that they would see you uh, in a new and different way, uh, in the way of the Bible, in the way that you truly are, and that any presumptions or walls would be broken down, and that you would call on your name and be saved and uh, have everlasting life, Lord. Please do your will. Uh, to you be all the glory. And we desperately need you and rely on you. I ask this in Jesus' name. All right, so if you haven't already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We've been working through the book of Acts, really, for the entire year of 2017. Uh, And it's, I'm not going to say a ton of new stuff this morning that you haven't already heard if you've been here. Um, Even as I listened to Vince's sermon last week, who, by the way, he crushed it, which was awesome. um, I was kind of chuckling to myself because I'm listening to his first, like, his intro, and I'm like, that's, he's literally word for word saying what I'm going to say tomorrow which is pretty cool. So I didn't steal his sermon, but it is pretty much the same sermon. So um, we're working through Acts, and, and we see uh, 
throughout Acts that God is on the move, that uh, Christ is advancing his church, and that his disciples um, are being used by him to preach the gospel. And so uh, in Acts 1.8, it's kind of the crux of the whole passage, Jesus tells his disciples, For you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we've talked about over and over and over again how that's, that's the mission of Acts, that Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, and he's leaving his people on earth to advance his kingdom in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here, there, and everywhere. And we see it with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and we see it with uh, everyone all over, men and women, Jew and Greek, rich and poor, that they're coming to know the Lord because the gospel is being proclaimed, which is really, really, really good news. Um, so we are just going to dive into that and see how God is doing that in this passage, in this, this part of the narrative, this point in time, and uh, see how it applies to us. Um, in Matthew 16, 18, al- along with the promise in Acts 1, 8, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, which is really good news. He says, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he says this, this promise, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus, he's about to go to heaven and leave his followers Uh, not only commands them to keep preaching the word, you'll be my witnesses, here's what you need to do, but it comes with a promise. And so we're going to see how God does that in Paul, in Corinth, and how he does it in our lives. Before we step into this, though, we need to look at context. Because when the first two words of a a passage are after this, we probably should figure out what the heck the this is. Right? So we have a map up here, and we've seen this a lot, and I think it's super good. I, I worked through Acts like a year, year and a half ago, and it took me about a year because I'm not very diligent with uh, reading. But every time I'd come across a, a Cilicia or Antioch or anything, I'd flip to the back. Because if we were hearing a story and they said, and then we went to Phoenix, and two days later we went to Tucson, and then we drove like 15 hours to Dallas, and after that we went to Knoxville, the majority of us in this room would go, okay, yeah, Phoenix, Tucson. Okay, we kind of figured that out. But we read these passages, we read these cities in Acts, and we just kind of keep going, not knowing what the heck's going on. So the map's super helpful. These are real places, uh, some of which still have the same name today. So a few weeks ago, we preached that Paul and Silas and Timothy are in Thessalonica, which you can see kind of top, slightly to the left up there. Um, they encounter opposition. Some are saved, but they leave to Berea right after that in order to basically avoid the persecution. Now, the good news is that those in Berea who heard the word, there were many who believed, which is really great because you see this pattern in Acts where whether it's Paul or Peter or Barnabas or Apollos or whoever, generally the case is they come into a new city, they go to the synagogue, which is like the Jewish assembly, a place of uh, instruction and worship, and they preach. Some reject them, some believe, and in some cases there are those who want to hear more, like in Athens last week. So they go to Berea, they're preaching the gospel, many believe. The problem is that the people who opposed them in Thessalonica heard about it, made the few-day journey to Berea, and basically like rabbled up, got the rabble-rousers, right, to, uh, to speak against them. As a result, the Christians sent Paul away. 
uh, most likely to keep him safe. So Paul is sent solo, as far as we know, to Athens. Uh, he's in Athens. Silas and Timothy, his two main ministry partners at this point, are back in Berea. Um, Silas shows up in Athens, which is what Vince preached last week. And even though there's, there's no synagogue that he, he goes into that we know of, he sees these idols all throughout their city, these temples and idols. And if you know anything about Greece or Athenian culture, you know there's all kinds of Greek gods and goddesses and idolatry all over. And he preaches this incredible message to the Athenian people. He doesn't even mention Jesus' name, but he talks about a man who uh, was crucified for the sins of the world and who will come back to judge the righteous. And it says that some mocked, some believed, and some wanted to hear more. So we see this pattern continue. And now we see him roll up to Corinth. So let's dive into the word. We're going to read a little bit, just like Sean does. We're going to read a little bit, stop, explain, read a little bit more. Acts 18.1, it says, After this, so all of that that I just described, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Let's pause. Now, Corinth is um, like an Athenian rival city. It's a, a booming metropolis at this point. It's, it's in between east-west trade routes on the sea and north-south trade routes by land. So there's a lot of money, a lot of products going through it. Um, so it is a, a wealthy, cultural, social, political center of the region. It's in southern Greece, uh, common-day southern Greece. And it is, it's booming. And when you, anytime you get a lot of uh, seafaring, people doing uh, goods through the sea, you're going to get a lot of cultures combining. And generally, the case is that if there's a lot of cultures combining, you're going to have a lot of sin. Right? A lot of idolatry, a lot of different gods coming in, um, a lot of sexuality. There's actually a Greek word from that time. I'll do my best. It's Corinthia zeste, which literally meant to Corinthian. You're like, neat. That means nothing to me. To Corinthian, the verb to Corinthian meant to live immorally. So it's kind of like how we see Vegas. Like, oh, what happens if Vegas stays in Vegas? Like, you're either like, I love Vegas or I'm never going to go there, right? There's not a lot of middle ground. So to Corinthian was to live a, like a drunken, debased sexualized life. So really, one word sums up Corinth, which is pretty incredible. So Paul leaves Athens and he steps into this. It says in verse 2, it says, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul comes on the scene in Corinth. He finds a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They're from Pontus, which is like uh, northern Turkey at this point. That, that matters to anybody in here. Uh, but they are, they've moved to Italy at some point, And the Roman emperor, basically the ruler of the free world, has kicked the Jews out of Rome. About 49 AD this happened. And so Priscilla and Aquila show up in Corinth. They're tent makers. Paul is also a tent maker, which is kind of neat that Paul had a job. So if you guys are like, oh, my job's totally not holy. Paul had a job too, right? So we got to suffer through it. Glorify the Lord. Um, so Paul meets up with them. We don't know if he knew them ahead of time or if he was connected with them. We don't know. He meets up with them. He makes tents with them. He does his job probably to support himself so he can freely preach the gospel. And then in verse 4, it says, like we always see, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So the Jewish people who were there and the God-fearing uh, non-Jews. 
It says in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived, remember they were left when he was sent off, so they now uh, meet back up with him. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So he's preaching the gospel, saying that the Messiah, the Christ, the one to whom all scripture points, is in fact this man Jesus that, that we know and have seen. It says in verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, I don't necessarily recommend that that be your response to your unbelieving friends if they don't take the gospel. Just yell at them that your blood be on your own head. But this is a common biblical response to those who reject salvation through Christ. We see it in Nehemiah. We see it in Ezekiel. Um, In Matthew 27, 25, it's actually what the Jewish leaders said when they're asking for Jesus to be crucified. Let let his blood be on our own heads and our children's uh, heads. So it's a sign of judgment. And Paul says, I am innocent. And he can say that he's innocent because he has faithfully preached the gospel to them and they have chosen to reject it. It says, uh, from now on I will go to the Gentiles, which again, we see these patterns over and over in Acts... um, 1346, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch and Pisidia, and they tell the Jews that you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, so we will return to the Gentiles. So he always preaches first to the Jews, and then he carries it to the Gentiles. In verse 7, it says, And he, Paul, left there, so he leaves the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. It says, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul faces opposition from the Jewish leadership in the synagogue. He basically says, It's on you now. I've done what I could do. I will preach to the Gentiles. And instead of going somewhere else in the city, he literally goes to the house of Titius Justice, whose house is next door to the synagogue. So I can imagine that the Jewish leadership were just so annoyed. Right? It's like the two-year-old who's like, Hey, do not play with the, the outlet, right? Do not put your finger in the, in the plug. And then they're like, well, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to stare at you while I get as close as possible, right? And I feel like Paul, he's not, he leaves the synagogue. He literally, some translation would say that the house is attached to the synagogue. So he continues preaching probably to the Jews and definitely to the Gentiles. And it says that Crispus in verse 8, who's the ruler of the synagogue, believed the gospel and his whole family was saved. That is huge, The synagogue is the assembly place where Jews go to worship. And it's where Paul always goes to uh, try to persuade them to come to know Jesus. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, and his whole family come to know the Lord. And then this next sentence is so good. It says, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. That is such a stark contrast from what we've seen at all of Paul's stops up until this point. We've seen in Berea that many believed, but then he was chased out of town. We see a lot of places that some believe or maybe none believed. And here it says many believed, including the ruler of the synagogue, and they were baptized. That's good. We could end the sermon right there and be like, let's just pray that that's so good and and rejoice in that fact. But it says this in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul's response is this. He stayed a year and six months, 
teaching the word of God among them. So again, up until this point, Paul comes and preaches. He, some believe he faces opposition and he has to leave, right? At one point he was stoned to the point that they thought he was dead. So they threw him outside the city walls where the dead people go. He's not dead. He comes back into the city and preaches, right? So he's always facing persecution. He's lowered out in a basket through a wall to, to uh, escape. He's always trying, he's always encountering opposition because of his preaching of the gospel. And yet in Corinth, Many are believing, and God comes to him directly and says, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, so you're not going to face that physical harm that you've seen. For I have many in this city who are my people. Now, we don't have an, uh, any sort of explanation of those people, but we can assume two things. One, that many Corinthians have already believed. So when he says, I have many in this city who are my people, some of them are those who have already believed. And we can also assume that there are others who will believe. So Paul hears this promise and this reassurance and encouragement from the Lord, and he responds by obeying. And he stays a year and a half, significantly longer than any other place, and he teaches the word of God among them. But, verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now we're just going to pause because Gallio, proconsul, Achaia, and tribunal are probably not words you're throwing out in a Scrabble game, just assuming. So we're just going to figure out what the heck that's saying. Now Gallio is the proconsul. The proconsul is kind of like the judge, the governor. Um, he's the one who's in charge of Achaia, which is the region that Corinth is in. So it would be like He's the governor, uh, he's the judge of Arizona, but he's, his seat is in Phoenix, okay? So he's in Corinth, but he's over all that region. He's a Roman uh, official who's been put there by the emperor. So Gallio, and he was the proconsul, the judge, um, chief law giver. He's the one who weighs good and bad of the region. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. The tribunal's like where he ruled, so his judgment seat. Like, couldn't they have just said that? Verse 13, so they do this, and it says, They said, this man is persuading the people to worship God contrary to the law. A complaint we see often railed against Paul from the Jewish leadership. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, hear this. So Jesus has just promised Paul, keep speaking, don't be silent, keep proclaiming my good news. I'm with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. And it says, when Paul, in verse 14, was about to open his mouth and probably drop some bomb sermon like he has previously. Gallio, the Roman pagan ruler, said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And, they, uh, and he drove them from the tribunal. So God has just appeared to Paul and told him, Listen, keep preaching the gospel. Do not be silent. Do not fear. I am with you. I have many people in this city who are mine. Paul obeys. He stays. He continues preaching the gospel. And the Jews finally get fed up, or they finally decide to act on being fed up, and they drag him before the only ruler that they could think would accomplish their goal. And before Paul can even defend himself, God uses this not a pagan, right? So he doesn't, even, he doesn't know Jesus. And if you know anything about Roman culture, it's not exactly Christ-exalting. Uh, lots of Christians were killed by the Romans because they didn't worship Caesar 
the, the emperor versus Jesus. So God uses Gallio to rescue Paul out of this, uh, this situation. And he essentially says, listen, Paul isn't anything wrong. If this were a murder or some, a real crime, then yeah, I can rule on it because our Roman code addresses those things. But he's just, it's religious. If it's about your words and your names, you guys figure it out yourselves. And he kicked him out, basically. Verse 17, it says, And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. So Gallio's like not necessarily a great guy. He let them, he did say, take matters into your own hands. So it says, they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So he's either the one who seceded uh, Crispus, or he's just another ruler. And the they all in this passage, we just don't know. Half the commentary said it was the Jews who were mad because he didn't accomplish the goal they wanted him to accomplish, so they beat him. Half of them said it was the Gentiles who just didn't like the Jews, and they beat him to make an example, basically, out of him. In verse 18, it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. So he's there for over a year and a half. After this one occasion, Paul stays even longer. Something that's really unique about this passage is that we see these long narratives like in Athens, where he's only there a short amount of time. And he's at Corinth for the longest time up to this point, and it's like, it's like 15 verses. So it's really neat, neat and unique how God used Luke to do that. It says, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers, the believers, and he set sail for Syria. We'll throw the map back up there. Syria is uh, north of Jerusalem. Uh, It's the region, and he's probably heading back to Antioch, which is where he started his missionary journey. Uh, He's going to head back there. So he's going all the way from Corinth on the left, all the way east to eventually Antioch. And he takes with him Priscilla and Aquila, these two very, very, very minor characters in this story, right? They're the people in verse 2. It says he found them. They were Jews, maybe uh, believing Jews, and he did tent making with them, and we don't hear anything from them. And then it says he takes them with him, not by force, but willingly, and so we can assume that they love Jesus. Now, that's really good teaser for next week's sermon, okay? So God's going to continue using Priscilla and Aquila to advance his kingdom, even though in this passage we'd probably forget about them once we close the Bible. So it says that Sincre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Um, I thought about just having Molly just read that as a joke. So you could be like, oh, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, don't. I have no idea what's going on there. Um, some say it's Paul. Some say it's Aquila. It's not pertinent to the passage. Um, so we're just going to keep moving on. Sincre is the port of Corinth. So he's going to set sail. It says in verse 19, and they came to Ephesus which we know Ephesus because of the book of Ephesians. And he left them there, but he himself went where? Into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. In verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Because his end goal is not Ephesus right now, right? It's Syria. He's probably heading back to Antioch. He's got a ways to go on his journey. So he swings into Ephesus probably to stock back up. And uh, he still goes in, he preaches the gospel, they ask him to stay longer, which is unique, and he says, listen, I'll be back, Lord willing, which I think is a really good reminder for us. Uh, It's not the point of the sermon, but that we would do things Lord willing. It says he set sail from Ephesus. He goes across uh, that part of the Mediterranean, it says when he had landed at Caesarea, which is the port near Jerusalem, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. So you can follow the arrows 
He goes from Caesarea up to Jerusalem and then down to Antioch. Anytime you see language about traveling to and from Jerusalem in the Bible, you're always going to see up and down. Even though he heads north to Antioch, he goes down because of the elevation of Jerusalem. Um, really unique. I don't know. I have a seminary degree, so I think that's just like the coolest. You guys might be rolling your eyes. That's okay. And it says uh, in verse 23, so he's in Antioch. He's done the full loop for his whole journey. Uh, and it says, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he starts his missionary journey in Antioch. He works all over the place. Ends up in Corinth from Athens. Works, swings into Ephesus, basically, as a pit stop, and then visits the church in Jerusalem, probably gives them a report of what's happening. They probably all rejoiced. Goes back to Antioch, spends some time there, and then off he goes, continuing to preach the gospel. So there's a lot here. There's a lot here, right? It's not, last week it was, we're in Athens. Here's why we're in Athens. And here's this incredible sermon that Paul is preaching to these non-believing Gentiles. And look at the results. And in this passage, we see he's in Corinth for over a year and a half, and Luke gives it 18 verses. So we don't see any of his sermons. We only see a few people that became believers, but we know that many in the city were saved, and we know that God came to him in a vision, promising him that I am with you, keep preaching, do not be afraid. I have many people in the city who are mine. Now, I... uh, struggle majorly with like performance-based everything. Uh, I was taught, and it's not a bad thing, this isn't a bad thing, I was taught like if you're going to do something, do it right the first time so you don't have to do it again, which is really good advice for accomplishing projects and things like that, uh, and I will definitely teach our kids to do that. But when it, came to, when it comes to preaching or teaching or doing my job or loving my wife or anything else except for driving, I think I'm a really good driver like everyone in here, uh, I, I feel like, like God doesn't really love me that I have to earn his approval, and that uh, pretty much anything I can say, especially from preaching, is not going to work. That it's, I'm going to stumble over my words, that you guys are just going to think I'm an idiot, because I really care about your approval more than God's, ultimately, is the heart issue. Right? And some of you guys are like, preach. And I was texting with a friend who's a youth pastor in the valley, saw him yesterday morning, and then um, he just texted me, hey man, like, preach the gospel tomorrow. And I was like, yes. Right? I have many people in this city who are mine. So he's, God is carrying out that promise through him in my life. And he said, what's the text you're going to uh, preach on? So I texted him the passage, and um, he read it, and he texted me back, and he, he just put that quote. He said, I have many people in this city. And I was like, ah. Right? It's one of those weird, kind of inex- unexplainable God moments where you're like, yeah, so like when I was 20, God used a show on MTV to like start calling me to himself for real. Don't ask me how or why, but that's like part of my testimony. And I see this text, and I see that quote, and I was like, all right, Lord. And the Holy Spirit in that moment was like, hey, I showed up to Paul, and I told him after he was successfully preaching the gospel, people were being saved, and I came to him and reminded him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And I'd read that like dozens of times prepping for this sermon. I knew more or less the direction you were going to go in with the application of this. And that that would be a part of it that I would encourage you guys to preach the gospel because God is with you and we can be bold in that. And I had missed it completely myself. But when I got that text, the Holy Spirit just dropped some truth on me. It was like, hey, I have many people in this city who are mine. 
So be encouraged by that. Also, preach the gospel. Don't be silent. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. I was like, ah, all right, Lord, let's do this. So God will continually use these things in Paul, and then he uses the word, right, living and active to encourage fools like me. So when we read a passage like this, it's a little bit harder to nail down, how does this apply to me? Now, that shouldn't always be our goal. It shouldn't always be, how do I read myself into this text? Because the Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus and how he's the fulfillment of all things. Um, But we still come to it for encouragement. So whether you're reading Numbers or Revelation or Matthew, God is using it to show you his character, to show you his promises, and to form you to look more like him. So we read this passage, and we've got to figure something out of, how does this apply to me? We see throughout Acts that Paul and Peter and others, they generally, like we said, they arrive in a city. They go immediately to the synagogue, the Jewish meeting place. They preach the gospel. Some reject, some believe, and some want to hear more. The difference in this passage, like we said, is that he stayed in Corinth to continue preaching the word. And I would argue that the main reason that he stayed in Corinth was because of this explicit, direct promise from God. I would also argue that though this promise is specific to Paul, there are promises throughout the word that affirm that these things apply to you as well if you're a believer. In 1 Corinthians, he said, Paul says that to this church, which is cool, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That all the promises of God are fulfilled through Jesus Christ. That's why we say our amen to him. And so just as Paul, even though he was already preaching with great success, as he was encouraged to continue preaching the gospel, because of God's reminder of his sovereignty, his provision, and his care, we can also do the same. Because we read from Genesis to Revelation, and we see promises like this, do not fear, preach the gospel, do not be silent, I'm with you. That should sound really familiar. It's not exclusive to this passage. A few are this, Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's really good news. So I I really like history. I would call myself a history lover, but I don't love to read. And I feel like a prerequisite for loving history is you have to love reading really big books. I don't. Uh, But I like history like as much as you can without loving reading. And I I enjoy church history a lot. Um, You can look back on church history and see the first like two to three centuries, this clinging to Jesus and his teachings. And there were other beliefs that kind of came in and crept in, and they would do councils or meetings or whatever, and they would say, no, that's not the gospel. Like Galatians 1, there's one gospel, and this is it. And then you see about a millennia, millennium, sorry, that the church is just destroyed. It reeks of compromise and power, and it's very, very, very evident that the enemy has used God's church to not advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to advance Uh, his message of power and greed and oppression. 
And yet, even in the midst of those dark, dark, dark times with the church is not a light to the world, there are still individuals and groups of people who are faithfully clinging to Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, and dying, usually, because of it. And a lot of those people are the reason we can read an English Bible. They're the reason we can meet here on Sundays with decent theology, because we can look at what they did in clinging to the word, and we can try to do the same. So God will continue to build his church, whether it's Redemption Peoria or the worldwide church, because nothing can prevail against it. That's a really, really, really good promise. Matthew 28, right? 18 through 20. He tells, he tells his disciples, go, baptize, proclaim, teach, disciple, save souls. Why? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And at the beginning, he says, all authority is mine. So you're worried about being strong enough? Guess who's got the authority? I do. So, and I'm with you, so preach the gospel. In John 10, 28, as uh, Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, he says, uh, he says uh, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand, those who are his followers. He says he will give us eternal life, and nothing can snatch us from his hand. Nothing. Even Jesus' name, he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? Which is obviously because he was with them on the earth, but that still rings true. Right? He's still with us. So these, this promise that Paul gets in verses 9 and 10 about Jesus telling him, keep proclaiming the gospel, do not fear, I am with you. Oh, and by the way, I have many in this city who are my people. We see that Paul rests in the bedrock foundation of that, and he continues preaching the gospel, and people continue to be saved. And we can see throughout the breadth of Scripture that those promises apply to us because of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that? I would say two main things. One, God has many people in this city. Okay? Whether it's Peoria or Phoenix Metro or whatever it is, God has many people in this city who are already saved and will encourage you. Like, I, like I, me and Josh made kind of like weird eye contact while he was singing, and I like felt incredibly encouraged. He probably didn't even mean to look at me, but I was like, right? And I was like, yeah, God has many people. God has people who are here, who are believers, that when you walk with them in community, God will use them to spur you on to know him more and to see his character through them. God also has many people in the city who have not yet heard his word who he, he knows because he created time and everything in it. He knows that they will be saved, but we don't. The second thing is this. So God has many people in Corinth for Paul and here for us. The second thing is this. God's command and encouragement to Paul to continue preaching, to not be silent, and to not fear absolutely applies to you as a believer. If you are in Christ, God has told you, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. I don't care what kind of broken relationships you've had or how many times your heart's been broken or whatever you're pining after with everything you have, nothing can snatch you from my hand. So like Paul, we are called to rest in the fact that God is just sheltering us in his sovereignty and his care and his provision and his strength And in that strength, we are called to preach the gospel because there are people in this city who haven't heard it. And there are people all across the world who haven't heard it. 
Now, when we look at our culture, probably the biggest thing that drives what we do in America is comfort. Comfort. Even first service, we walked in and it was like southern Alabama in here. It's like, like, ugh. Right? Like, don't hug the worship team, right? Or me, because we all probably smell a little bit. It was super humid and all that. And I was like, Psh, work outside. It's no big deal. We'll work up a sweat. It'll keep us cool. We'll be fine. But I was singing over here. I haven't sung in like three weeks because we went on vacation. And I was like, how was it? Oh, yeah. Like, I don't have what it takes to sing this song because it's so hot in here. Right? And it's just ingrained in us that we desire comfort pretty much as Americans above everything else. Right? It's the American dream. Fight the comfort. Dig through the lack of comfort so that the end goal can be that you have a good life and you're comfortable. Right? Work really hard and sacrifice that comfort for a while so that your kids can have comfort. Right? We have air conditioning, thank God. Uh, my wife and I just went on a trip. We were out of country for a few weeks, and there were a few places without air conditioning that were like 95 degrees with 60% humidity, and I was really thankful for air conditioning. And I was like, how do people sleep? And I was like, hey, there's people in huts who don't have roofs over their heads who sleep fine. Right? So we, we as Americans, probably the biggest idol in our lives is comfort. And we forget the promise of God that he's with us and to not fear. And we forget his command to preach the gospel because our idol of comfort is so much bigger that it clouds our vision. C.S. Lewis, in his work, The Screwtape Letters, now again, I'm not a huge reader. My wife has read it. I haven't. So if I get it wrong, please give me grace. But she's read me a ton of passages, and it just, like, Lewis is a master of literature. In The Screwtape Letters, you focus on these letters between Screwtape, who's like a veteran demon, and their letters to his nephew, Wormwood, who's like a rookie demon, basically. And what Screwtape's doing throughout this book is he's writing letters to Wormwood telling him the tips and tricks and the, the ways to best pull their patient, a new believer, away from the Lord. And at one point he tells him this. He says, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate Man from the enemy. And the enemy in this case is God. I'm going to read that again. But do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, from God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Hear this. Hear this. Indeed, he tells him, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Now, if you're in Christ, you were just reminded of the promises that nothing can snatch you from Jesus' hand. So we need not worry that, oh, my idol of comfort is going to make me lose my salvation. Now, we need to always seek to be killing idols in the power of the Spirit, right? But I will say this, the enemy, in this case Satan, is absolutely using these little sins like my love for ESPN or love for being on my couch rather than loving my neighbor. He's using this comfort to keep others from hearing the gospel. I'm not here to make you feel bad, okay, because I'm preaching this absolutely to myself as well. 
But Paul heard this promise from God after already successfully preaching the gospel and seeing fruit. And he believed it and he acted on it in obedience. And God calls us to do the same. If you're in Christ, God has given you the strength and the promises of his presence to go and preach the gospel. Now, don't even, let me take the word preach out. Go and tell other people about Jesus. We're all called to it. So as you go to work or at home or you're at QT or whatever it is, live like Jesus would and also please tell people. Please. Because we have a gift that's unlike any other. We have eternal life. We have a water that will never run out, that's living. We, will, we have a resurrection. We know that if you are in Christ, you are a child of the living God. Like Christ is our co-heir. He's like our brother. Insane. That you're perfectly made, you're perfectly loved, you're perfectly sufficient, you're perfectly beautiful, you're perfectly accepted because what Jesus has already done on the cross, not because anything you or I could do. We have that grace and that gift given to us. Let us not hoard it to ourselves and keep it from others. And if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, let me encourage you. All the promises of God that he loves you, that he will break through any barrier that you have up, that he will fill you with all fullness and sufficiency, those all are true in Jesus Christ. So take him, live for him, and be with him forevermore as your greatest hope and joy. Let's pray. Father God, we pray in thankfulness that the distance between us and hearing your voice is simply a matter of opening our Bibles and reading your word. In John 1.1, 1, 1, you say that you are the word, Jesus. You say that in Hebrews, that your word is living and active, pierces our souls. That it's relevant, no matter how crazy or wacky our culture or any other culture over the last however many thousands of years may get. And God, you've called us, you've, I'm so thankful for the reminders of your presence and your sustenance and your strength, because if anybody in here is like me, we forget those so easily as soon as we have to pay bills or get from point A to point B or whatever it may be. So God, thank you for the reminder of your presence. Thank you that you were with Paul and that you came to him uh, explicitly and told him these things and that we can know that maybe you won't come to us in a dream or a vision, but we can open our words and know that you're with us. We can see your character and your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God, I pray for all in this room that don't know you. They know who they are and I pray that they would come to the well and drink of living water. That they would call on you and be saved and that they would know that all the things they're chasing are wind and will ultimately leave them feeling empty. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace through which you give us all things. Be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.